Anna, how you doing? Hey, Kara, it's good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So, so happy to have this conversation with you today. And I really want to hear about your journey to Yale because I got to know you through a project you're doing because of the results of COVID called the Wisdom Project. So can you can you tell us, first of all, how did you get to Yale? And then maybe a little bit about the Wisdom Project. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for having me on your amazing podcast. I'm super happy to be here. And to answer your question, how did I get to Yale? And that makes me go back to a funny story. So I'm Brazilian and I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And I came to the field of mental health uh, through my own lived experience um, as a child. And basically I went through the system as a kid and kind of made my way out of it by becoming a psychologist myself. And that's very different in Brazil, what clinical psychology means. Uh, In Brazil, it's very politically engaged. A big part of my work was related to deinstitutionalization and closing down big hospitals in the country where there were, you know, just terrible human rights violations and setting up community-based services, you know, just including the voices of people who are affected by bad mental health services and trying to create um, services that meet people's needs in a more humane and dignified way. And basically, but trying to make sense of my work, um, I started just thinking that I needed to study some more and that it would be really important for me to systematize um, what I was doing. And that led me to, you know, get a master's degree and then a PhD. And, you know, my interest was really moving towards the first time that people touched the mental health system. And so uh, first break was something that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. And through that, I started looking into open dialogue as a, an interesting approach. And that was kind of the topic of my PhD. Yeah. And, and then I wanted to see how that happened in practice. And then I came here to the U.S. to study that. Yeah. And then how I got to Yale, that was a funny and interesting story. And I'll always be thankful for the people who are responsible for that. So Sandy Steingard <laughs> from Vermont was a mm-hmm. huge part of it. And she introduced me to um, Larry Davidson, who's a professor at Yale. And I sent him a very fancy email saying, listen, this is my project. I would really like to study this and come to the U.S. And then I wrote a couple of pages to him and said, will your program host me? And he replied, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, period. Not a long, like, uh, yes, uh, very interesting. Yeah. And here Very I Larry. Am. <laughs> That's right. And so here I am with, you know, the help of these people and a lot of other people. Um, I've been here for two, about two and a half years. Wow. That's an amazing journey. I actually didn't know about something that you just talked about, which is the difference between Brazilian psychologists and American psychologists in the sense that um, there's much more of an advocacy activist role. And I've heard that from other countries as well. I've heard that from um, Jamaica and a couple other places. But so can you um, talk a little bit about what that looks like when you're providing a service? And then it's kind of like you're 
I don't want to say you're biting the hand that feeds you, but you're certainly like slapping down the man, that, but you are the man, but you're not the man. <laughs> can you explain a little, <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it, but can you explain a little bit what it looks like when you're providing a service, but also fighting to make that service more amenable to meet the people's needs, especially from a human rights perspective? That is such a good question. And it's rarely asked. I think that people just assume that being a psychologist looks the same everywhere in the world. And, you know, there are just different historical elements that determine what a profession looks like at the end of the day. So what I can tell you is that in Brazil, their psychology was actually a discipline that hosted a lot of the critical elements of other humanities during the military dictatorship. Uh, So the universities were really suppressed during the military dictatorship. And a lot of intellectuals migrated from the humanities to the psychology field. And that kind of, Mm -hmm. yeah, so that kind of made for an interesting kind of meeting point uh, between the health sciences, which can be more related to the medical field, and the human sciences, where there's a lot of critical theory and critical thinking. And so that's one piece. And then the other piece is that the psychiatric reform movement in Brazil that started in the 70s, but is a movement that is still alive today, that was a movement that really got everyone together for the similar cause, right? I mean, the rights of people, and and that would include the entire Brazilian society, were at, you know at a moment where those were were being defended by everyone so military dictatorship was ending and the country was going through a redemocratization process and that has led to a series of movements for the rights of citizens to come together and and advocate for a more just society and a lot of the momentum that the psychiatric reform movement got came from this broader societal organization into, you know, politically becoming a a democracy. And that also came with the creation of our national health system, which is free and universal. And that's where the right to health and the human rights bit fits in really nicely, where you know, it's just the idea of a more just society, uh, mm-hmm. more inclusive of everyone kind of fits in um, nicely with the idea that you shouldn't have stigma, discrimination, social exclusion, and that you shouldn't have deposits of people like psychiatric hospitals or asylums. And so those ideas were floating at the same time. And so mm-hmm. several different groups had aligned political interests And then psychologists were just a big part of this entire process. And that really made a mark in our profession. And we carry that that with us, having been part of that huge movement. That's so interesting because when I first entered the consumer survivor ex-patient peer, (laughs) all the names now, (laughs) movement, well, peer wasn't on the name at the time, but that's more recent. But, you know, we sort of talk about the psychiatric rights, you you hear the terminology, you know, consumer again was newer. So it was probably ex-patient, survivor, consumer, if we went in the right order. But when we talk about the movement in the US, I've never really heard us connect it to movements internationally. 
even though the psychiatric reform movement, so we'll talk there, the psychiatric reform movement was happening pretty much around the same time globally. After going to Trieste, Italy, you know, what was happening in Trieste was that was all around the 70s, the um, the mental health law in, in Italy, not just Trieste, but in Italy, that was around the 70s, which is the same time in the U.S. that we had community mental health laws and started to do a deinstitutionalization. That wasn't a Reagan thing. We think it's a Reagan thing. It was way before Reagan, actually, that um, there was supposed to be a movement from um, institution to community, and the funding was supposed to follow. Of course, the funding for us didn't follow. We don't have National Health Service. We have different types of um, human rights and social justice movements, but they've never coalesced well with the psychiatric movement. I don't know. Are you are you finding that sort of the same when you look at the difference between maybe Brazil and internationally and what's happening in the U.S.? Yeah, that's, an, again, another a really good question. I mean, there are similarities there because in Brazil, the human rights framework and the convention of the rights of persons with disabilities was not as well received as it was elsewhere in the world. Hmm. Um, yeah. And the, That's the other curious. Piece, I know it's interesting. It should fit very nicely, but for some reason it wasn't. And, and, you know, people think different things about that, but there's the terminology that the CRPD uses with Mm -hmm. disability that is really heavily rejected in in the field of mental health advocacy in Brazil. And so it's just the the language piece created a huge difficulty to bring those kind of two camps together and coalesce around a common interest or goal. So I think that for different reasons, we also have some difficulties in Brazil to uh, advance the human rights uh, framework and perspective, as well as the recovery. And the recovery perspective has a different uh, type of resistance. And that's really because uh, in Brazil and Latin America in general, there is strong, let's say, resistance to to anything that comes from the United States. Um. <laughs> oh no, what? Come on, get out. <laughs> We're not the king and queens of the world. What? No. <laughs> I mean, well, you, you can probably understand why. And yes. uh, so many yes. political drawbacks uh, in Brazil happened in relation to, uh, you know, U- U.S. Yes. as, a, as a, a world and a global power. And, you know, there's a huge tradition of critical theory in Brazil and especially Marxist uh, theory that really uh, supports a, a, a big critique of especially the notion of a person as a consumer and more so when it comes to consuming health. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, within the developing our national health system, it was really important to to reinstate health as a right and not as a commodity or as, as something oh, wow. that can be purchased. So, and, and that ended up playing out in the mental health field in terms of the recovery movement where there is some resistance to it because it came from a consumer uh, movement um, in the U.S. And so we're constantly thinking, is this a good fit with how we see um, health as a right uh, rather than as a commodity? Well, so if if there's tension, and this is brand new information, brand new information for Karis, so and probably the rest of us listening in, but if 
recovery is sort of this, mm, you know, we're not into that. We're having some resistance to it, whether it's U.S.-based or not. It, well, I think it's because it's U.S.-based because we don't see health as a right or we don't talk about health as a right as of yet, right? I think we're, uh, uh, we talk about it, but we have not operationalized that. We don't have a national health plan. We don't have health for all. We don't have any of that kind of stuff. If the term or the I don't want to say the value of recovery, but if the term or the principles or whatever of recovery isn't kind of meshing culturally, then what do people say about being well? Like if the recovery is not the term, is there a different term? Is there a different way of thinking about it? Yeah, I think we have a, a tradition and I don't know if folks are hearing know about this, but the biggest influence in our mental health uh, reform movement in Brazil was the Italian experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. I did not know that. Yeah, so that is very present for us uh, to this day. And, you know, Basalia was a huge part of, and he went to Brazil, and many of our Brazilian intellectuals went to uh, Trieste. And so there was a huge exchange of um, mm. experiences that really informed how our reform uh, took place. And then we developed our own uh, way of talking about things that's called um, psychosocial attention. And we use terms, first of all, I think we're less scared of using terms like madness and, and crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. We use a lot of those uh, who are kind of not on vogue <laughs> anymore. Um, and yeah. for good reasons mm-hmm. uh, in other places, right? I mean, the history of the terms are different is different. And so mm-hmm. we adjust the language, but there's a lot of playing with those terms and using some humor yeah. to deal with, uh, with these experiences that I feel make it a little bit easier to relate to. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is that the idea of us and them And so, you know, mental health professionals as being these beacons of mental health and, you know, the other people who we serve, I think that idea is way more fluid in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And I also think that has something to do with a huge influence that psychoanalysis had, which also looks very different uh, in Brazil. But this idea that you as, you know, a professional suffer from the same things that you treat in others, I think is an idea that is very accepted in Brazil, especially among my colleagues. And so it's harder to separate yourself into an us and them when, you know, everyone has a little bit of crazy in them. Yeah. Uh, That's your starting point. (laughs) I love that. Everyone has a little bit of crazy in them. So when you're thinking about a lot of the things we're talking about, did, is, is that what led you to conceptualizing the wisdom project in response to the emotional distressors that people would be experiencing globally, really, during the pandemic, COVID-19? Yeah, so the, the wisdom project came from, for me, when, when the pandemic started, I, you know, just a lot of things kind of lost meaning, things that I was doing, mm-hmm. um, especially related to research. I was you know, doing research about this and that. And suddenly there's this huge thing happening. It just felt very disconnected. And so I thought I should be doing something related to what was going on. And the first thing that occurred to me was that, you know, all these mandates that, that happened, you know, stay at home, don't get out. Uh, there's something dangerous happening. Uh, careful with germs. 
you know, just a lot of it kind of made me think like, yeah, a lot of people have had mental health issues in the past. I think either thought about that or have kind of lived in fear of some of those things. And maybe, maybe there are experiences that, you know, people who have been hospitalized or have been through extreme states, maybe they know better mm. and are dealing with this in, in a better way even. And so I convened a, a group of people with lived experience um, to see if, if that resonated with people and how they were thinking about it. And initially, like it was a group, I think we had 15 or 16 people and people were like, yeah, I mean, pandemic, I mean, this is nothing for me. I've been hospitalized. I've been told what to do. I'm actually, you know, happier when I get to stay at home, like working remote has been great. And I'm not as freaked out as other people are. So a lot of the people who I talked to felt more prepared and we're kind of dealing with the situation, maybe a little bit better than others who have never had a life disruption ever. Mm -hmm. So that was the initial idea was, you know, is there wisdom from lived experience with mental health challenges that just make coping with the pandemic different mm -hmm. and People who work with me know that I, I'm not a huge fan of the word cope, uh, but uh, I think yeah. it can be because there are some things that we just shouldn't be coping with, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> creative so creative maladjustment, Martin Luther King, got you. Yes. Right. So I just wanted to <laughs> make sure we got that in. <laughs> yes. But so that was kind of the original thought around it. And then a huge narrative around mental illness caused by the pandemic started to float, right? So a tsunami of mental illness because yeah. of COVID-19. And so there was already this idea to pathologize people's response to this very global life interruption. Mm. And that uh, bothered me and led me to create this project where we would have listening sessions with you know, people who have been having different experiences with the pandemic, and especially those who are marginalized, oppressed, and experiencing um, the pandemic through the lens of poverty, of homelessness, of a series of what we would call social determinants that are really making their experiences very different. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure that we capture the social elements and put things into context rather than labeling experiences from a symptoms perspective, even though symptoms are often there, right? Like we're sad, we feel depressed. We call them a number of different things and, and suffering those are, those is real feelings. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're there symptoms versus feelings, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, feelings are there and uh, the medical establishment calls them symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, a lot of tension there, but I really wanted to, you know, just capture people's experiences in context mm -hmm. and that the voices of, of, of people who are generally not heard can be heard um, through our project and you're part of it. So you yes. can tell folks how that's, how that's been like too. <laughs> oh, it's, it's actually been amazing. And I think, um, you know, I was struggling at the time at the uh, uh, onset of the pandemic with this belief that, or also the narrative of the fragility of people. Oh, we're just so fragile. 
you know, uh, you know, people with quote unquote serious mental illness, they're so fragile. They're going to break during this experience. They're going to, you know, we need to like envelop them more with our benevolent care, <laughs> you right. know, kind of thing <laughs> at that swaddling. Yep. And again, I, I use those terms and I, I use them with intention because that's exactly what happened. A, a lot of times it was like, well, the community mental health center is the only place people have to go. And I'm thinking, well, number one, why is that? Yep. I have a broken leg and I have to go see the orthopedic surgeon and I have to see my doctor about uh, the progress of how my leg is going. It is not the only place I have to go in my life, yep. but why, when it becomes mental health, it, the mental health system itself becomes the end all be all for a person's whole life. And I mm-hmm. thought this is where we actually disable people. Yep. And I got concerned that 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 we had now gotten to this point where we did have to, you know, and it happened around the country, of course, where, you know, doors had to be closed, if you will, the the community mental health centers um, couldn't take people in, we had to do everything um, remotely, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there became this concern, how are we going to meet all of their needs? And I'm thinking, but why are we meeting all of their needs? Like they should have friends and they should have other social connections and they should have, you know, maybe church or community center or other kind of activities that they're connected to that are not part of the mental health center. But we brought everything into the mental health center so that when we shuttered our doors, it appeared that there was nothing. And of course, the peer run organizations were like, boom, zoom, they just moved. Boom, zoom, just like that. Everybody on zoom, right? (laughs) Or everybody on teams or whatever the heck it is they were using as their, um, their platform. And uh, then uh, assisting people to get access so that they could participate in groups. Um, I remember the substance use community had all of these national meetings and people could go to meetings all over the country if they couldn't find something in their own locality. So we figured it out. Um, And there's a lot of resilience, as you said, and I think we found it. And resilience sometimes isn't the term I like. Again, I don't think we should be resilient against um, things that are socially constructed. But yeah. but anyway, um, I think the the project gave voice to. But yeah, we we've been there, done that. This is right. we're we're not going to break because of it. And actually, you should be looking to us to help you through it because we've been there. Exactly. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, people are like, where are they going to get their meds? They're not going to know. We know where to go. We know where to go uh-huh. when the CVS shuts down across. We're like, we know where to go. <laughs> Ask us. That's what the whole peer thing, excerpts by experience. That's what yep. that is all about. So yep. um, I've appreciated the process and also ensuring there's diversity in the wisdom uh, project because certain communities were. Um, really more greatly impacted and that sort of yep. the magnifying glass on um, disparities in our country and inequity in our country that people were able to give voice from some of these communities. I thought that was great. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, so the idea to kind of flip the thing on its head a little bit was there from the get-go. It's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're really concerned about, yeah, where are people going to go? And you, they've been going places forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. that may strike, you know, that may be uh, news to you, but um, yeah, people have been going places. People have autonomy and agency in their communities yes. and yeah, just want to make sure that we get that message out yeah. there. And they might yeah. even have something to say uh, for all of you who are struggling, um, you know, from never having experienced yes. uh, a serious life disruption uh, they may have, you know, a lot of insight into into what that looks like and and how to kind of go through it. 
Yeah. And so that was there from the beginning. And the other piece that and we wrote an opinion piece mm -hmm. that was published in Psychosis, which is a, a journal, an academic journal. And we were all people with lived experience on the paper. And it, yeah, it got published under the name of When Reality Breaks from Us. Yeah. And yeah, it, yeah so it was a funny little play of words there. And, uh, and we already had early on in our group an understanding of how this was impacting communities in a completely different way. And so it, it really did make a difference if you were Black or Latinx and mm -hmm. where, what zip code you lived in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was, those disparities and the inequities um, in how the pandemic affected different communities, you know, that was there from the get-go. And we wanted to make sure throughout the, pr the project that, you know, that racial equity lens and that diversity in our group was, was there. This is always a difficult thing to negotiate and to achieve, but that has been a priority for us from the beginning. Yeah. So the other thing that we've been involved in, and I think, you know, this ties in nicely with the discussion of disparities and inequities. Again, how do we look at that globally? And then because of your um, history or long history in sort of a human rights, a human rights perspective and human rights as a foundation, you know, we did the UN Rapporteur you know, I call them the rapper because I can never say repertoire correctly. <laughs> yeah. The, the UN rapper um, handover dialogues. Well, and um, can you talk a little bit about the um, former UN rapporteur and um, how you got involved in also the, the, the handover part of it? So a lot of the discussions that we're having right now, especially the ones related to a critique of the biomedical understanding of mental health issues and the strong focus on social determinants of health, you know, the framing of that as an important way to move forward uh, globally into, you know, the mental health agenda, that was really, really nicely articulated by the former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, Danius Perez. And he has a series of reports um, that I mean, if there is a website that we can plug um, some resources in for folks. Um, I also did an interview with Danius for Madden America that really gives a nice overview of his work yeah. with the special procedures. Um, so he really was able to formulate and articulate a framework uh, for mental health that moved away from the biomedical model and really understood um, mental health in a more holistic way. Mm -hmm. And his framework, I think it was really revolutionary in many senses that someone in his position was able to articulate that in such a clear way. And that can be seen in his reports. Um, the importance of, of that in, in global terms, I think, was really felt uh, by the global South And I think that that is a really important piece because a lot of the global mental health work has been criticized for using Western understandings of, you know, what mental health and mental illness is and kind of exporting that to uh, different mm -hmm. contexts where that might not make um, a lot of sense. And so... I think in terms of uh, conceptualizing things from a social determinants perspective, really created a shift 
towards decolonizing the global health field and moving it away from the more Western biomedical definitions of mental health towards a more contextualized and historically rooted understanding of what you know, mental health, mental illness, and life disruptions look like in different parts of the world. Right. So his mandate came to an end recently, and we did a series of online events because a, a in-person event was not possible due to the pandemic, and that was organized and directed um, by Julie Hanna from the University of Essex, who has been supporting Danius's mandate um, for the past six years. And she really had great vision to come up with these events. And you were on the panel for our last event, yeah. which was really a fantastic closing to our series. And those uh, videos will all be available on our website. And we really hope that this way of thinking about mental health uh, and that the legacy of Danius's work especially in how aptly he was able to engage with the peer community and the lived experience community in the global South and how he was able to bring those uh, communities together. Uh, We really hope that we, we keep keep his legacy alive, but also continue with the momentum that he created uh, through his work and continue to organize around those important values um, that were already there but that he was able to kind of neatly um, articulate in his reports. Yeah, and I do hope that the new UN Special Rapporteur kind of sees the thread through which she can carry this through in her work and her focuses on, oh, I want to say, I always say maternal health, but I don't know if that's really the right term. Yeah, sexual and reproductive health. Sexual and reproductive health. And she's, uh, I mean, I've heard people talk of her. I cannot pronounce her name correctly. So I really feel. Yeah, she's, her name is Tlaleng Mofokang. Yes, Tlaleng, I can say the last part I cut it and say, and she's from uh, South Africa and just a a rock star activist in her, um, in her work. And so I'm hoping that the dialogues throughout will help her think about how to carry some of this work through so that it's not like, okay, one rapporteur stops and the other one starts. And that I know is the purpose of having these handover dialogues from um, each of the rapporteurs, which I guess there've been five. Is she the fifth? Listen to me. Like I I did my little homework before (laughs) before I got on. I was like, let me understand exactly why they set these up. And I I have met with um, Danius um, before when I was at SAMHSA. He did come and speak to HHS. And so um, Uh I met him at HHS. And then at another meeting that was at the um, OSF, um, Open Society Foundation. So um, I think, um, you know, this is where you know, I also like to think about the U.S. should never stand alone. We need to be looking um, outward uh, because we aren't the center of it all. And again, this Mm -hmm. is not me not being, you know, all American yet. I'm not saying that I don't have pride in my own country. I'm saying that there's so much that we can learn from others. And I think sometimes we look internally in the U.S., we look for, oh, well, let's look for an exemplary program, and we look within our borders. And I've been saying, well, sometimes the exemplary programs are not in our borders, and we need to look outside of our borders and see what other folks are doing and what can we um, bring to the U.S. It does have to be adapted, of course, because we don't have natural, national health service. We don't have a, a single payer. Yep. Um, and a lot of the other countries have single payer, which gives them the freedom to do a lot of programs that we're just not able to do. 
Yep. Because it comes from like different funding sources, sadly. But, um, you know, I want to say that I really enjoyed this conversation and more than enjoyed it, I've learned so much. And, and now you've given me some more thoughts around doubling down on some conversations that I've been having. And I, I hope um, for others too, in their advocacy and um, activism work that uh, they can think about and, and um, act on a lot of the things you said, because they're really, really powerful. So thank you for joining. Yay, yay. And uh, I hope our listeners will join next week. Thank you so much for having me, Karis. This is a really fun conversation.